on the foxnews.com website. You can, you can see that article there today, this morning. The headline or title of the article is um, Holy Week Mirrors Life on Earth with Sadness and Joy, Agony and Hope by the Roman Catholic Cardinal Timothy Dolan. And I was curious what he had to say in the article, so I read through it. And to my surprise, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised, but I was still surprised that he didn't say anything about uh, why Jesus died. He didn't talk about sin, didn't talk about um, the significance of the resurrection. But he said, for example, in the article, um, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. Is it bizarre? Is it a tease? Or is it a reflection of what this life is for all of us? So it's basically like a metaphor of what life is like on earth. Well, maybe Cardinal Dolan had said better things in other places and other times about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but um, that article completely misses the point. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. This is not going to be a positive thinking pep talk. It's not going to be anything like a fable or metaphor about life in this world. No, we're going to address very important questions about the resurrection. What was it all about? Why is it so important to the message of Christianity? Why should we believe that it actually took place? And we're going to use what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 11, to answer those questions and to understand the significance of Christ's resurrection as it is right at the heart of the heart of the Christian message. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 3 through 11, like I mentioned, but let's uh, do our due, due diligence and notice the setting. So uh, previous to verse 3, Paul writes in the first couple of verses in chapter 15, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you and which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So what Paul is going to be writing about by way of reminder, he says, is the gospel the good news. This is the Christian message. He's going to unpack that. And you'll notice that it is a message that's not supposed to be merely casually received. It's not a message that is to be taken lightly. Having heard it, Paul says, we are to receive it, stand in it, and hold fast to it. 
And anything less than this kind of authentic response to the gospel, Paul says, is to believe in vain. It's a useless kind of response. So that brings us to verse 3. And in the first part of verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Turns out Paul deals with a lot of issues in this letter, and that's what 1 Corinthians is. It's a letter from the Apostle Paul to this church in Corinth that he himself planted, and you can read about the history of that in Acts chapter 18. But up to this point, Paul has been dealing with a lot of different issues. For example, division in the church. Paul's own authority as an apostle being challenged. Sexual immorality in the church. Broken marriages. Controversy over meat sacrificed to idols. People getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. The abuse of spiritual gifts and the denial of the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus as well as the future resurrection of believers. Those are all issues Paul has been dealing with up to this point. But um, as the Apostle Paul deals with these important issues, he wants to make sure at this point that the Corinthian believers have their priorities straight. It was important for them. And it's important for us to recognize that there is one thing that is more important than anything else. And it is the message of the gospel. So that brings us up to what we're going to be looking at. Um, so the first thing that we notice here in the heart of the Christian message from the pen of the Apostle Paul as the Holy Spirit moved him in his writing is that Jesus died for our sins. So this is the first element in the contents of this gospel message. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Every word there is important. And we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it, but we have to um, recognize the importance of these words. Um, Christ is the, the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament word for Messiah, which means anointed one. So when the writers in the New Testament call Jesus the Christ, they're acknowledging that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the anointed deliverer that had been promised to the people of Israel for centuries, and the time had come for his coming. And it also emphasizes Jesus' spiritual qualifications for the task of saving his people. There's no other Christ. There's no other Messiah. And it took none other than the Messiah to do what Jesus accomplished for the salvation of his people. And then Paul says that he died. Christ 
died. And that, of course, points back to the death of Jesus on the cross, which Christians traditionally commemorate on Good Friday. And by the way, we also commemorate it every time we observe the Lord's Supper. Uh, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that as often as you uh, eat this bread and drink this cup, the cup of communion, the bread of communion, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So it's not just a once a year commemoration. But the death of Jesus was no ordinary death. He didn't die of natural causes. He died a gruesome, agonizing death. Death on a Roman cross. An instrument not only of capital punishment, and it certainly was, but of torture and public intimidation. It was a public event to warn the people at large not to be guilty of the crime that this person committed who's dying right before them, the slow and agonizing death. But speaking of the word died, it's important to emphasize that Jesus did literally die. And why do I say that? Because there have been different people throughout church history and even today who continue to say things like, well, Jesus didn't really die. Um, there's the swoon theory. Do you know that the supposed prophet Muhammad in the Quran, the holy book in Islam, actually wrote that Jesus did not die. It only looked like he died. Therefore, he didn't really rise from the dead either. But the Bible is really clear that Jesus did actually die. And there's a whole bunch of passages we could look at, but look with me in John chapter 19. John chapter 19. And notice with me verses 31 through 34. John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, all those who were crucified on that day, and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, now never mind that we had already seen that Jesus had breathed his last, that Jesus had given up his spirit. But here are Roman executioners who knew what they were doing and knew what death looked like. And when they inspected the body of Jesus, which had already been hanging on that cross for six hours and which had already been badly broken and beaten through the flogging, they saw that he was dead. But even that didn't end it in verse 34. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear 
And at once there came out blood and water. So like I said, there's other passages we could look at, but I just want to be clear that Jesus did actually die. So when the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3 that Christ died, he means literally Christ died. There was no more life remaining in his physical body. He was certifiably, observably, empirically, medically, beyond any doubt, dead. But then Paul goes on in verse 3 to tell us why Jesus died. Christ died for our sins. This was the purpose of his death. Turns out, this was the purpose of his coming into the world in the first place. Jesus had said on a number of occasions that he had come into this world for the purpose of dying and rising again. His resurrection was not just plan B. It was not taking a bad situation and turning it into good. No, his resurrection was the capstone on the whole work of redemption that involved Jesus' death. That was the whole reason why Jesus came in the first place. He died for our sins. And so anytime we talk about Christ's death and then his resurrection, which we'll get to, we also have to talk about our sins. And this is an unpopular topic, although every culture has a philosophy and awareness of sin. People in our culture, our modern American contemporary culture, have a very well-developed idea of sin. It's not necessarily what the Bible has to say about sin, but People in our culture realize, they, they sense when something is wrong. So during the pandemic and the lockdowns, and I'm, I'm sorry to go there, I'm not trying to make a point, but um, I mean, if you wore a mask or you didn't wear a mask or you were vaccinated or not vaccinated, you, you broke the rules, <gasps> you did something wrong. If you say something these days that offends somebody else, that's wrong. They wouldn't use the word sin, but that's really what they mean. It's sinful. So people know that there's such a thing as sin. But the Bible doesn't leave it up to cultures and societies to define what sin is. God himself gives us the definition. Sin in reality, is lawlessness. Sin is not living up to God's moral law. Sin is violating God's moral law. And God's moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. So just go through those Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. When we do, that's sin. You shall not make for yourself any carved or graven image which means we're supposed to think about God and worship him the way his, 
He's revealed himself to us. We're not supposed to use our own imaginations and think that God is like us. And to the extent that we do that, it's sin. We're not supposed to use God's name as a curse word, as a swear word. And every time we do, it's sin, blasphemy. We're supposed to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. We're supposed to give God our time for corporate worship, among other things. And to the extent that we don't care about worshiping God in his house with his people, that's sin. We're supposed to honor our father and our mother. And to the extent that we dishonor our parents, that's sin. We're not supposed to murder, but consider human life sacred. And every instance of murder is sin. We're not supposed to commit adultery. We're not supposed to steal. We're not supposed to bear false witness against our neighbor. We're not supposed to covet anything in our hearts that belongs to our neighbor. And every single instance of us violating God's law or not measuring up to God's law, sins of commission, sins of omission, sins of the heart, sins from our mouths. It's all sin. The Bible is clear. The wages of sin is death. Sin is the worst thing about us. And it's the most frightening thing about our sin is the reality that God hates it and he will punish it. But there's good news. Because in that same breath, Paul says Christ died for our sins. In other words, in behalf of, as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Galatians 1 and verse 4, Paul, the same writer here, wrote that Jesus gave himself for our sins. And he adds at the end of verse 3 there, in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament scriptures. This isn't something that the Apostle Paul or the other apostles made up. This is what the Old Testament itself had predicted and foreshadowed. For example, in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, the scriptures say, that God's suffering servant, the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what it means that Christ died for our sins. Then Paul goes on in the beginning of verse 4 to add that he was buried. 
that he was buried. And that's not just a detail. It's actually very important in the whole story. Jesus was already dead, for sure. But after he died, his dead corpse was removed from the cross, wrapped in burial cloths, and placed in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea. And because Jesus had publicly stated on multiple occasions that on the third day he would rise from the dead, Pontius Pilate had the tomb sealed and he posted a Roman guard there consisting of several soldiers. It wasn't just one. But nothing could keep Jesus dead. Nothing could keep Jesus in that tomb. And so Paul goes on to say, Christ was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. Notice the second half of verse 4. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day. What's the third day? It's counting uh, inclusively. So Friday, the day of his death, was day one. Saturday was day two. Sunday, the first day of the week, was the third day. And by the way, the reason or the fact that Jesus was raised on the first day of the week uh, is specifically recorded by all of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then that ends up being the reason for changing the day of worship for believers from the last of the week, the Jewish Sabbath, to the first day of the week, the Christian Lord's Day. And even though we're really happy to celebrate Easter, no problem, we rejoice in this once-a-year observance, the reality is that we remember the resurrection of Jesus on Resurrection Day, which is every single Sunday, every single first day of the week. So you're all invited to come back next Resurrection Day, which is next Sunday, not next year, by the way. So he says that Jesus was raised on the third day. And then again, he repeats this phrase, in accordance with the scriptures. So the Old Testament not only foretold Jesus' death and explained what it was for, it also foretold Jesus' resurrection. One such passage is Psalm 16 and verse 10, which Peter appeals to during his Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2, where um, David wrote, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And by the way, when Peter appeals to that verse, Peter says to his largely Jewish audience, Now, brothers, you know that David, who wrote that promise, that psalm, he is long dead and buried, and we can go to his grave. So obviously, David was referring to somebody beyond himself. And Peter says that someone is Jesus, the Messiah. 
And in Isaiah chapter 53, a chapter I've already read from, after uh, going on for several verses about the death of the suffering servant of Jehovah, the prophet then writes that he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify many. Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11. And that passage in Isaiah, by the way, is also important to help us understand the significance of Christ's resurrection. Isaiah says that he will be resurrected, but he also explains why. It has to do with justification. The righteous one, my servant, will justify many. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 talks about this, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses, that's his death. He was the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But then Paul also says in Romans 4.25, and raised for our justification. Following in the train of thought of Isaiah, raised for our justification. Justification is a very important word in the New Testament, and it refers to our legal standing before God. When God justifies a sinner, what he's basically doing is declaring us righteous, not just innocent, but positively righteous. And it's not because of anything righteous in us. That's very clear. We've already gone through the Ten Commandments, and we're convinced, I trust, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no way we can be justified in and of ourselves, but it's because of what Jesus has done for us. So in his death, Jesus was punished in our stead, but in his resurrection, he was raised for our justification. So in his justification, God had declared that the words that Jesus himself said from the cross, it is finished, were absolutely true. Those weren't just the words of Jesus himself, it is finished, but those were the words that represent the verdict from heaven itself. It is finished. And God demonstrated that by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection shows that Jesus' death in our behalf has been accepted by God, the judge, as payment in full for our sins. Amen. There's nothing else to do. No more death to die. No more suffering to endure. Nothing to add to it.
Jesus conquered death itself. He was raised for our justification. So Jesus was raised from the dead. Then Paul goes on to say that the resurrected Jesus appeared to many witnesses. This is really important. And this is another um, facet of the Christian message that, that's so different than anything else. The message itself is, is different because the Christian message says we can't save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do for ourselves to earn our way to heaven. God has to do it all, and God has done it all in the person of his son. That's unique. But it's also unique how we've come to receive this message. So you compare that to other examples, like I had, I've already mentioned the, um, Muhammad, the, the prophet of Islam. He's the one who wrote the Quran. You, you either believe Muhammad or you don't. But your acceptance of the Quran is completely dependent on your trust in one man, Muhammad. Take Mormonism. The Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrines and Covenants. It all comes to you by way of Joseph Smith, the supposed prophet of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Well, you either believe Joseph Smith or you don't. But in the case of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the historical reality of that fact does not depend on one single individual. We've already seen that the Old Testament scriptures foretold it. But then Paul goes on to, to add these historical credentials in verses 5 through 8. He says in verse 5, for example, that he appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for Peter. The resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter. And that's a big deal. Because before the resurrection, Peter had denied the Lord three times, even with cursings. And do you know who Peter did that in front of? A servant girl. Peter was so scared of being numbered with Jesus at that point that he resorted to cursing and swearing to disavow his relationship with Jesus in front of a servant girl. Then he goes on to preach that amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost and to truly be a rock in the early church. What made the difference? The fact that the resurrected Jesus appeared to Peter. And then Paul adds, not only to Peter, but 
to the 12. So that would have meant the original 12 apostles minus Judas Iscariot plus Matthias at that point. And notice the difference, by the way, that the resurrection made in the 12. Peter denied the Lord, but the rest of them abandoned the Lord. They all fled. They went from being 12 scared men to men filled with holy boldness who turned the world upside down. What made the difference? The resurrected Jesus appeared to them all. Notice verse 6. Then, Paul continues, the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, they had died. Maybe this appearance took place at the mountain in Galilee where Jesus gave the Great Commission. We're not told exactly. But whenever and wherever this appearance took place, it was infallible proof that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. And the Corinthian believers themselves had personal contact with many of the eyewitnesses. We are not being asked to believe a fable or a myth against all reason. We are being asked to believe a miracle for sure. This is absolutely a miracle. The God who spoke all things into existence in the beginning, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, the, the, the God who miraculously came into this world in the form of a helpless babe in a manger, who caused a virgin to give birth, that same miracle-working, all-powerful, eternal, sovereign God raised his son from the dead. Yes, that's a miracle, no doubt. But it's also a historical fact with eyewitnesses who saw the proof of it. And the list continues. Then in verse 7, he appeared to James. So this wasn't one of the 12. This was one of Jesus's brothers, James, who went on to be the leader in the church in Jerusalem and then to write the book of James in the New Testament. And the reason that that's so significant is because Jesus' brothers at one point were unbelievers. They did not believe him. At some, point, at some point, his entire family tried to seize Jesus because they thought he had gone off his rocker. They thought that he was insane. Mark chapter 3 and verse 21. So one of those... James, Jesus' brother, was transformed from an unbeliever, someone who thought that Jesus was crazy, to being a leader in the early church who referred to the same 
brother as our Lord. What made the difference? The resurrected Jesus appeared to him. And by the way, well, Paul goes on to say that he appeared to all of the apostles. Do you know that all of the apostles met violent deaths of one form or another? James here, according to uh, the early church historian Eusebius, was stoned to death by his fellow Jews in uh, 62 AD. The, the other James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were uh, put to death by the sword of Herod. The Apostle Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians 15, apparently was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. Why would these guys concoct a lie that they knew was a lie when the message was unpopular, the leader was just executed in front of them, and their life would consist of suffering and ultimately death. Because Jesus appeared to them all alive. They couldn't help but believe that it was true. Hank Hanegraaff, in his book on the resurrection, wrote this. What happened as a result of the resurrection is unprecedented in human history. In the span of a few hundred years, a small band of seemingly insignificant believers succeeded in turning an entire empire upside down. And by the way, not with swords and clubs and rocks and stones and chariots, but with a simple message, the message of the gospel. They, they turned an entire empire upside down. Hanegraaff continues, as has been well said, they faced the tyrant's brandished steel, the lion's gory mane, and the fires of a thousand deaths because they were utterly convinced that their master, their Lord, had risen from the dead. Paul continues then. What does this have to do with us? Uh, in verse 8, by the way, he does mention himself, the Apostle Paul. He wasn't one of the original apostles. But as he was on his way to destroy the church as a persecutor on the road to Damascus, the risen Jesus appeared to him and saved him. How do you explain the conversion of Saul of Tarsus? Because Jesus actually rose from the dead. But this final lesson here, or component in the heart of the Christian message, is that Jesus saves even the worst sinners, like Paul. Notice what he says about himself in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church 
of God. And he talks about that a lot in his writings. He wasn't a seeker. He wasn't seeking Jesus. He was seeking the destruction of the church of Jesus. He hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. And he hated Christians. And that's why he did everything in his power to cause suffering and persecution and death for Christians. That's why the early Christians feared Saul of Tarsus and were skeptical of his conversion. He truly was unworthy to be called an apostle. So then why did God do that? Why did Jesus save Saul of Tarsus? Why did God call him into the ministry as an apostle? Because of what Paul says in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He worked hard to destroy the church. Then he worked harder to be an instrument of building the church and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. But did you notice that word used three times? Grace, the grace of God, his grace toward me, but the grace of God that is with me. Grace, grace, grace. This is how a rebel against God, a hater of God, an enemy of God, goes to receiving the blessings of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus, his grace. His grace doesn't mean that he comes alongside and helps, though there's an element of truth in that. Grace doesn't mean that we do 50% and God adds the remainder. He fills up what's lacking in our efforts. It doesn't mean that at all. Grace means in spite of what we deserve to be judged for our sins, to be thrown into hell forever because of our sins. And in spite of the fact that we, like Saul of Tarsus, were alienated from God by our wicked works and are by nature enemies of his, even though it may look different in our lives, in spite of what we deserve, God saves us anyway because of his grace, because he chose to have mercy on the likes of us. That's what grace means. And then how specifically do you receive that? Verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Believe in the Bible means a lot more than just checking a box or saying, oh yeah, fine, I get that, I believe that, and then you go on and you live your life unchanged. Remember what he said in the beginning. You receive the message. You stand in the gospel. 
You hold fast to the gospel. You, you persevere in it. You commit your life not only to the gospel, but to the Jesus of the gospel. You, you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, Savior and Lord. You commit your life to him. That's how to properly respond to this heart of the Christian message. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Commit your soul, your life, your eternity to him. Have the heart of the hymn writer Augustus Toplady who wrote Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, Wash me, Savior, or I die. And do you know what the promise of the Bible is? You will be saved. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious gospel, for our glorious Savior, for his glorious resurrection from the dead. Would you please help us, Lord, to, as believers, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. And we pray, Lord, that today would be the day of spiritual resurrection in the souls of many who will hear your word. Save them, Lord. Cause them to be born again. Bring about in their souls, in their minds, in their hearts. Life from death, light from darkness, and save many. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.